Welcome to episode 143 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Neil Levy. Neil is a professor of philosophy with research interests spanning philosophy of mind, psychology, free will, moral responsibility, epistemology, and applied ethics. He's senior research fellow at the Oxford Yohiro Centre for Practical Ethics and professor of philosophy at Macquarie University, Sydney. From 2010, he was head of neuroethics at the Florey Institutes of Neuroscience in Melbourne. He's written many papers and books, including Bad Beliefs, Why They Happen to Good People, which is open access and free for you to read on the Oxford University Press website. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 142 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've just found us. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge more people towards more compassionate and rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for the word sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Hi, Neil. How are you? I'm well. Thanks, Jamie. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join this series of sentientist conversations. We've had, um, I have this sort of habit of stalking people on social media to spot people who I think might have things to say in these uh, sentientist conversations. And you jumped out at me. And indeed, you even admitted you think you might be a sentientist. So I'm going to try not to put you off today, but we'll see where we go. We'll find out. You will find out. So as I've explained already, this is a series of conversations about what I think of as the two most basic, but also most important philosophical questions, what's real and who matters, questions of epistemology and ethics. And I have an obvious bias because I'm trying to develop and popularize a really simple pluralistic philosophical stance or worldview, if you like, called sentientism, which suggests that when it comes to thinking about what's real and what to believe, we should take a broadly naturalistic approach using evidence and reason with some humility to try and set our credences if you like um, and when it comes to a, the critical question of moral scope you know who, who matters and who warrants our compassion the clue is in the name every sentient being any being that has the capacity to suffer or flourish or have any valence experiences should be included in our moral scope um, but i'm talking in these conversations to people who both agree and disagree with that sort of baseline philosophy so it'll be fascinating to understand how your work fits in and and i'm particularly interested to talk to you because you know, I hinted that in our conversation before we started recording. I think a lot of philosophy does understandably get really deeply into the weeds, but sometimes misses out on the basics. And I think sometimes we make mistakes on the basics as we go into the detail. And your work, I think, does seem to keep returning back to these essential core questions. So, um, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. But before we get on to those big questions, how would you best introduce yourself and your work? Uh, I'm Neil Levy. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney and a Senior Research Fellow at the Uahiro Centre for Practical Ethics here at the University of Oxford, so I'm, uh, half in Oxford and half in Sydney, uh, perpetual winter uh, for a long time. <laughs> the pandemic was a bit of a shock. I had like three summers. Uh, I didn't know summers was still a thing. It turns out they are. You actually saw the sun occasionally. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it was quite a shock. I'm not doing that again if I can. Um, 
I'm a very wide ranging philosopher. I work on lots and lots of different things. I um, I'm an applied ethicist in Oxford, a practical ethicist. Um, but I've also been, I'm not now a free will specialist. Um, right now I'm doing mainly epistemology. Uh, a couple of lifetimes ago, I was actually a continental philosopher. That's where I began. I began in um, French continental philosophy, Foucault, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, fascinating range of work. And just to give people an indication of, you know, a couple of your pieces of work that jumped out at me as being relevant here is, you know, bad beliefs, why they happen to good people, and also sort of looking at the agency side of things, consciousness and moral responsibility as well. So, so much of your work is sort of circled around these big topics. And I really enjoyed your conversation with the um, Decoding the Gurus podcast guys as well. That was another sort of prompt to come and talk to you where you were talking about virtue, intellectual virtue signaling and so on. So. They set a high bar. The best interviewers I've I've encountered, I think. Yeah, really good, really good. Yeah, I'm a big fan. So let's let's go on to these um, crazily big philosophical questions. And the first one being this, you know, what's real? How should we believe? Questions. So many of my guests tell a story about how they grew up. Was that originally in a context that was quite naturalistically minded, maybe scientifically minded, maybe atheist agnostic, or one that had a more spiritual or supernatural or religious or mystical influence and how's their thinking changed over time about those big epistemological questions and where are they now and i know it's crazy to ask you this question given i'm asking you to summarize about you know 60 papers and numerous books and <laughs> so um it, it's interesting to me probably nobody else to wonder what influenced my you know my upbringing my childhood had on me uh, like uh, i was brought up jewish Mm. Uh, but like lots of Jews at the time anyway, I have a feeling that the community's got much more um, fundamentalist, as many religious communities have. Um, at the time, being Jewish was um, very much a cultural thing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like CNE Christians who go to um, church on Christ Christmas and Easter, it was that sort of Judaism, go to the synagogue twice a year. I had some religious education, you know, the Jewish equivalent of Sunday school. I guess it was Saturday school, yeah. uh, but not much. It was very much a cultural thing. Uh, I did, in fact, get sent to, We I grew up in, in South Africa for the first 10 years where I went to a state school. When we moved to Australia, I was sent to a religious school, um, but a pretty relaxed religious school and relaxed on religion anyway. Yeah. About that time, I thought, I was about 11, 12, I thought, this doesn't make much sense to me, this God business. And I've been a pretty, you know, a convinced atheist ever since, uh, without being particularly, you know, uh, militant about it. Yeah. Um, I've come to think that being religious can be perfectly uh, reasonable. Uh, depends on your starting points. So as an epistemologist, I'm very much interested in um, subjective rationality. How well are you processing your evidence given where you are? Yeah. And the big, my big thing is people are much more rational than we think. Even QAnon supporters, uh, whatever conspiracy theory you like, they're completely wrong. I've got no doubt about that. But if they believe what they're saying, and often they just don't, that's the other thing. There's a yeah. lot of trolling. There's a lot of 
bullshit in the kind of technical sense out there, people saying things to like, you know, trigger the libs without really caring if it's true or not. Or it might be a performative thing or a loyalty marker or yeah. yeah. And yeah, I've got, uh, I work with psychologists in Australia and I'm happy to talk about that because we've actually, uh, one of our central focuses is on do people believe what they're saying? We have lots of evidence people don't believe what they're saying um, quite often. Um, When they do believe it though, they're rational given where they start. So, you know, we all have upbringings. We all have um, certain ways of being enculturated, socialized. Uh, these are things philosophers tend to pay too little attention to, but I think they're really important. And then how we process evidence is very much a function of those formative histories. Um, and I think we tend to do it reasonably much better than 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 uh, than we think. Yeah, uh, and then psychologists think, given that that upbringing. And it's an interesting sort of uh, balance of two angles, because on the one hand, you're recognizing that people believe things, bad beliefs, you know, things that are pretty obviously wrong. But at the same time, you're sort of being more respectful to them in that you're saying, given where they are and who they are and what they have available, it's sort of unfair to call them irrational, right? In a sense, it's reasonable and rational for them to... And, and does that, without jumping too far ahead, does that partly link to your thinking about free will and moral luck and the nature of agency in the sense that, you know, if you take this to a completely deterministic space, you know, everything I'm doing, even moment to moment now, is really just the product of physics and biology and genetics and conditioning and culture and environment. And therefore, everything I'm doing is in some sense rationality because it's just physics operating. Well, so... <laughs> is that going too far? I don't... I'm not concerned about determinism. When I worked on free will, what I wanted to do... Uh, was to change the the question we were asking. I'm completely unsuccessful in in this. The question that philosophers ask is: Is free will compatible with determinism? And I think that's a kind of boring question. The answer is yes, but not that interesting. Yeah, it depends what you mean by free, and then you can spend weeks discussing that. Yeah. So I wanted to change it very much to the epistemic condition. So to understand free will in the way philosophers tend to, as whatever it is, whatever control we have over our actions and our thoughts, which make us responsible for them. So we can use responsibility as the guide. So I wanted to ask about the epistemic condition on responsibility. Uh, What does it take to have control over your beliefs such that you're responsible for them? Mm. I actually argued that nobody does have that kind of control over their beliefs in to satisfy a demanding responsibility condition. By responsibility, I um I don't mean app for for you know criticism. You can criticism comes cheap. So does praise come cheap? You know, if somebody believes in um that five uh, G is is uh causing climate change or or whatever it is, um I can criticize them as, you know, you're off with the fairies, mate. Um, But what I mean by responsibility is have they comported themselves in such a way that just on the basis of how they've behaved, they deserve to be punished or, you know, given some sort of reward. Mm. And I argue that they don't because they've done the best they can um, with their genuine beliefs. They've done the best they can with the evidence available to them. Um, so that, that's what I call the hard luck view. 
Yeah. Luck explains um, so much. It explains uh, our background, which is what, what philosophers like to call constitutive luck. Um, and then it leaves stuff open, but that uh, what uh, I call present luck fills in the gap that constitutive luck leaves open. So none of that set, satisfy a demanding responsibility condition. Um, so I argued. Yeah. So the link between my free will views and my epistemology views. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you. I, and I like that balance. I like that balance. Um, and in a way, you've already answered the question of your book. You summarize, you know, why do bad beliefs happen to good people? In that you're saying it's not because they're irrational or unreasonable in some sense. Your suggestion, as I understand it, in that work is that it's more about the epistemic context they find themselves in. There's you know, because of who they are, and then the information they have and the evidence they have. You know, what more can they do but end up with these bad beliefs, even if it's in quite a rational approach? Yeah. But I guess one worry about that approach might be it's a sort of, um, you know, uh, leaves us feeling a little bit powerless as if if everyone's already rational. Is there any value in improving epistemology or are we just sort of stuck with these different difficult informational contexts always driving good people to have bad beliefs? Well, in a way, I think it gives us more to do, but it's more to do um, of the sort of things philosophers aren't good at and shouldn't be good at. Mm. So philosophers <laughs> want to um, improve thinking. They think, okay, great. Um, I've got the tools to do that. I can teach people. I can teach people critical thinking. And indeed, you know, I don't want to be down on that just because that's a huge employment industry <laughs> for philosophers. <laughs> got to keep people busy. Yeah. Critical thinking students. Um, so we can teach logic, formal logic. We can teach informal fallacies. Um, and people get better at that um, sort of um, critical thinking when they talk about philosophers. There's lots of evidence to show that. Mm. What they don't get better is using it outside the classroom. They get better at doing classroom exercises. Yeah. And um, do, you think, do you think that's because the teaching is too narrowly fo focused on the sort of logical aspect of rational thought, but doesn't think about rationality? in a broader sense, which needs to include judging the quality of sources, determining which authorities to trust, you know, open-mindedness to other stuff. Is it about the, the view of rationality is too narrow or? Exactly. So in the classroom, I give you evidence and the philosophers, as they say, stipulate it. You just accept it. This is, this is the case. Yeah. Side any doubt. Given this, then that, yeah. Exactly. But when you're in, out in the real world, you're faced with that continual problem of not just uh, how should I update my beliefs given the evidence, but should I trust the evidence? Um, a huge amount of psychological research that's been interpreted as showing people is ir are irrational. You give them evidence and they don't update on that evidence. Um, but it doesn't show what, what it's taken to show because people just don't trust the evidence in the first place. Uh, and indeed, you can formally model why they shouldn't trust the evidence, given what they already believe. You tell them that um, famous experiment um, divided participants into two groups, um, much replicated experiment, divided participants into two groups, give one 
evidence in favor of capital punishment being a deterrence and one uh, one kind of evidence and a different kind of evidence um, that shows capital punishment is not a deterrent. And then you reverse it for the other group. And people don't change their views. If they thought capital punishment was a deterrent beforehand, they still think so afterwards. And if they didn't, then they don't afterwards. And, and that's widely interpreted as showing people are irrational. They're not updating on their evidence. Instead, they're adjusting their view of the evidence given their prior beliefs. But yeah. that's what you should do. That's what you're supposed to do. If um, somebody shows me a prima facie plausible study showing that I don't know. All dogs have five legs. I'm going to think, well, I don't know what the problem with the study is, but it's bullshit. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. The adjustment goes both ways, right? The, the assessment of the quality of the evidence is partly based on what you believe. It's not just a one-way funnel of stuff coming in that bounces bounces our, our views around. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, these days we're supposed to be uh, Bayesians, uh, and that's what Bayesianism is about. You, you've got to update your view not just on the evidence but also the prior probability of the evidence uh and how do you know the prior probability well that's uh given what what do you think is plausible yeah yeah exactly yeah well that's fascinating thank you and there's there's a couple of aspects of that sort of wider uh approach to naturalistic epistemology which i do think goes broader than just a sort of narrow rationality toolkit of sort of logical philosophy stuff one one is um getting the balance on this spectrum between, I guess, total gullibility at one end and total denialism at the other, and maybe with a sort of healthy scepticism in the middle ground. And I don't know if that's a valid spectrum to think about, but it's almost this question of like, how open-minded should you be with complete dogmatism on one end and and a sort of maybe relativistic open-mindedness such that you deny anything could be true, right? So the, these spectrums and but one of the things i find as a total amateur fascinating is that it's not as if people psychologically fit in one of these places on the spectrum it's that they seem to have enormous flexibility about which domains they apply these different modes of thought to because as you talk about you know whether it's QAnon or um anti-vax or homeopathy or you know pick your subject interestingly it seems that the same individual is able to be completely gullible when it comes to one set of propositions and one set of sources they see as authorita authoritative and that they will unquestionably accept those views. But at the other extreme, they can be completely denialistic about another set of sources or authorities or sets of evidence that they don't want to believe in or they don't think are trusted. Is, is that just another way of saying what you were already saying, which is it's, it's really where their starting beliefs are that lead them to that ability to be gullible and extreme denialist about at the same time is that yeah. a different way of saying the same this, thing this, uh, i don't like these terms like gullibility uh, yeah. uh and and skepticism for that matter and open-mindedness um i think uh there's too much value you know derogatory or value terms it's all built implications built into it or yeah kripke has this um this nice article in defending dogmatism and he's um he says, if somebody gives, gives me an argument for astrology, this is his example, and I don't see what's wrong with it. I don't think, gee, well, maybe astrology's got more going for it than I thought. I think I don't know what's wrong with this argument, but I'm dismissing it. I don't need to spend any more time. Yeah. Um, only rarely do we need to um, 
engage with um, evidence for something outside our own areas. Um, you know, I think the right way to respond to climate change denial, you know, if somebody comes up with an argument for why climate change isn't happening, I'm going to dismiss it. Uh, and, and everyone should dismiss it, except climate change, you know, scientists who work on climate change. And they should, they're probably going to look at it and say, oh, yeah, that again, because that's 98, 99% of the time that's, um, they've seen it before. Yeah. Uh, um, and only if they're glancing at it, it makes some sort of sense, then they should engage with it. We've got to rely on the main experts to to do their stuff. And then we've got to take their word for it. Now, that does leave us vulnerable. Yeah. And it happens. Um, there are famous examples, Lysenkoism in, in the Soviet Union, where the domain experts um, about uh, biology were basically ordered to adopt this Marxist version of biology, which had nothing to do with Marxism. And it led to crop failures um, because yeah. they, couldn't, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't actually tell farmers to do with things that worked. Um, instead, they were telling them to do things that don't work. It leaves us vulnerable, but if you're in the Soviet Union, the chances are you're doing you're you're rational to accept this false information coming from the domain experts, and irrational to reject it. Yeah, um, and I think what we've got to focus on is making sure that the political and social contexts are such that the domain experts can do their stuff. Um, and, you know, I want to say domain experts are pretty narrow. One of the things that experts are, um, you know, the kind of hubris that they're prone to is to think, well, I'm an expert on, say, agriculture, and therefore I can talk about climate change or yeah. vaccines or, or, or socialism or Marvel movies or whatever it might be. No, they're just yeah. they're lay people on everything else. Yeah, confidence uh, and authority and expertise in one domain does not necessarily uh, run across into another. Yeah, It really runs into another, yeah. but it leads to greater confidence. So I think what we need to do is each of us have our own domain of expert, expertise and have warranted relations of trust between domains. Yeah. Uh, now, one of the big problems is, you know, this is where you've got some sympathy for the anti-vaxxers or, the, or, or, you know, climate change skeptics, is they can point to reasons why they shouldn't trust. And some of those are good reasons. Yeah. Sum up with... Sometimes, know, in, sometimes institutions and experts do get things wrong, right? Yeah. And sometimes they're corrupt. Um, yeah. So uh, we've got to focus our attention on that epistemic environment. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess that, that's part of the challenge, right? Because... On, to be completely unquestioning of institutions and authority and experts clearly doesn't make sense because they're human pursuits, right? Which are always going to be flawed. If there's not corruption, there may there's always going to be bias and uh, inertia and mistakes, of, of of course. But instead of just throwing out the idea of expertise and authority completely, it's I guess it's a question of you know one making sure that those institutions are genuinely trustable and they have the mechanisms to self-correct you know, built in. And two, that, you know, when we do think, hold on, maybe the institution is wrong here, you probably need some particularly compelling evidence and a rationale to found that belief. It can't just be some random guy on the internet spouting off about how Dr. Fauci's got something wrong. So, yeah, so I guess there's a balancing act there. But 
yeah, ultimately given the complexity of the world and our environment, you know, no individual can, you know, you can't do your own research on everything yourself, right? And there's got to be some degree of guarded trust built into these mechanisms. And I, one of the other reasons I, I like your approach is because one of the things I struggle with is, um, you know, I'm thinking about this sentientism idea. It has a commitment to a naturalistic epistemology in it. And I do think that's a valuable thing, whether it's something that's institutionally in place or whether it's in our own minds. Um, but um, it, it's, I find it really interesting how I can, you know, talk to thousands of different people. And sometimes I fall into the trap of thinking that if they believe X, their epistemology must be good. So if I come across someone who's an atheist, I immediately go, oh, their epistemology must be sound. And if I come across someone who's a vegan, uh, <laughs> I will immediately go, you know, their epistemology must be sound. And then you find someone who's a vegan atheist, and I'm like, oh, this person is really racking up epistemological quality points. And then you find out they're neck deep in QAnon or think that, you know, Putin really is in a humanitarian way trying to denazify Ukraine or something. And, you, and all of a sudden you get... you. you it's just rammed home to you that just because someone, you know, I guess there's a couple of things going on. One, they might be applying, applying good quality epistemology in one domain, but terrible quality epistemology elsewhere. Or to your point, it might just be that their epistemic environment is very different and their baseline views are very different in those different domains. So it's it's not as simple as just saying, you know, you use evidence and reason consistently across all domains and all will be well. So I, I, I don't know how I can turn that into a question, but is, is that part of the reason why people who can be, you know, right in certain areas can seem to be so wrong in, in other domains at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, one reason, uh, the, the growth in what seems to be like alt-right veganism is kind of astonishing to me. Yeah. Uh, and it seems to be based on this sort of silly idea of the natural, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. Um, that's not a good reason to be vegan, but you know, it, it, I'm not going to criticize them for, for the veganism. Yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. If you're causing less harm, you know, uh, but there can be, uh, you know, one of my previous guests said, you know, there can be, there can be bad reasons to come to the right conclusion and bad yeah. reasons to end up doing something good or less harmful. Yeah. But the main reason I believe most of the things I believe is because somebody I regard as reliable told me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair way of summarizing this this section. So it sounds like, I mean, I think you would describe yourself as having a naturalistic, you know, epistemology and worldview, but you're not naive about, you know, how perfectly rational you are or that that's always going to lead you to the right answer. And and ultimately you, like everybody else, are shaped by the information environment you're in and who you trust and who you don't trust. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you. Uh, um, I think I'm right about lots of stuff, but that means, yeah. that's not a reflection of my virtue. Sure. That's a reflection of my luck. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that idea of moral luck, actually. Like you say, you don't take it all the way to the end, but I think it can actually lead us to be much more compassionate when we engage with others who we think are wrong about things because we can understand that context. Um, and um, yeah, that can lead to a more constructive conversation than one that's sort of driven by judgment and retribution. So, well, let's come on to the second equally crazily big question of uh, what matters. And for many people with, um, you know, more naturalistic worldview, when they've moved away from a more religious starting point, as you did and as I did, that can feel like we've got to rebuild sometimes because, um, you know, whether it was the Bible or the Quran or some other religious text or set of cultural norms, the ethics came packaged with it. 
you know, you had rationale for good and bad and right and wrong. There was often a threat of hell or reward of heaven afterwards. And, you know, sometimes quite specific things that you are supposed to do or not do. But if we have a naturalistic view that doesn't put any accord to sort of supernatural or religious ethics, there is an obvious question, uh, that trope question of like, what what do good and bad and right and wrong even mean if you don't have a religious grounding? So again, I'm interested in your journey about how you've come to think about, I guess, the roots of the foundations of ethics, if you think, you know, such things exist. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm anti-foundationalist generally. Yeah. One of the things that epistemology needs to give up is the idea that, you know, the Cartesian idea, Descartes sitting in front of his fire saying, what can I know with absolute certainty? And I should believe only what I can know with absolute certainty so I can know about, you know, know, a priori ideas and uh, geometry and from there somehow you get God. And from there, I don't know, Douglas Adams parodied this as you can get rice pudding and tax returns uh, <laughs> but there's a there's a demand for a sort of perfection and otherwise you cannot accept yeah yeah and i don't think we can have foundations um yeah. i don't think we can there's anything or or very little very little important in any case maybe triangles i don't know um that we can know with that kind of certainty and it's the same in morality i, don't, I think we do need to get rid uh, of the idea that uh Something only counts as valuable or valueless insofar as there's some rationally justified system with foundations from which you can deduce it. I think we, you know, my um, continental philosophy might be uh, uh, showing now we're we're thrown into the world in which um, uh, things I have value and uh, for us and questioning whether certain things have values i mean you can you can be skeptical about them but the skepticism doesn't has less power than the value itself you know i'm thinking of moore's response to the skeptic who thinks how do i know the there's an external world and his famous response is well he has one hand he has another um it was hard to know what to interpret that as meaning, but um, the one thing to say is this proposition, here's my hand, is just much more plausible and powerful than the skeptical argument, which is supposed to say I can't trust my senses. Yeah, And I think something similar applies in the value domain. The idea that um, nothing matters um, well, I, I think it requires an idea of ultimateness that maybe doesn't make sense. Maybe ultimately nothing matters. You know, the, the universe will suffer a heat death, uh, and that's kind of sad. And, yeah. if that and, just, and there won't be a scoreboard at the end going, well done, Neil, you got 4.5 out of 10. Yeah. Um, or you want to play another game. Yeah. And um, even then, why would that matter? <laughs> that's true, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's kind of sad, but it's not the perspective to ask about. The perspective is to ask, you know, is my life going better or worse now from within that life? Mm. Uh, is the world going better or worse from within that world, from in the experience of the beings in that world? So I don't see the need to have foundations uh, for morality. Yeah, thank you. And I, and I, I agree that there's this sort of, I don't know what it is, but there's some inbuilt human intellectual 
need for sort of certainty and clarity and binaries and 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 going back to what you mentioned earlier on this bayesian idea of you know basically having probability as being core to our credences so instead of it being i believe this and i do not believe that it's more about degrees of credence uh, that you should you know wait with the evidence one of my previous guests ac grayling he, he was saying look the, the definition of the word rationality has the word ratio in it and the idea there is that you ratio your credences to the evidence it's not saying you know you're ever going to achieve some perfect belief so i like that balance um but it's interesting on the moral stance because you've been clear why you would then you know reject a sort of nihilist view of nothing matters even though technically depending on your perspective you could claim that but how do you get from so i can see how you could get from you know i reject nihilism because i know things matter to me right because i'm experiencing things moment to moment and i like the taste of this coffee and i don't like it when i stub my toes so at least there's a solid foundation how do you then think about whether and why we should value others and and um care about what matters to others I mean, again, that's a challenge that um, I'm not sure that we should be in the business of trying to meet. So one of the big things that uh, psychologists and philosophers have argued about is whether morality is ultimately selfish. So maybe I only care about suffering because seeing suffering makes me feel bad. Yeah. Um, we get warm fuzzies or there's a reciprocal benefit or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Or enlightened self-interest, yeah. There's an evolutionary argument for that. It's Gieselin, his famous slogan, uh, scratch an altruist and watch a hypocrite bleed. The idea (laughs) being that evolution can only select for things that are in my interest or the interest of the organism. Therefore, if the organism claims to care about anybody else, they must really be a hypocrite. Because the explanation for them holding that is always going to be self-interest. I think that just that's a kind of crass confusion of the approximate and the ultimate levels of explanation. Yeah, the ultimate ex- level of explanation might be um, because it's in our interests to to care, in our selfish interests. But that doesn't mean we don't care. Yeah, I mean it, it's exactly the same as thinking sex can't really be something you'd want to do for its own sake because it's really about procreation. <laughs> yeah. So you you're know, a hypocrite to enjoy it. Yeah. I, I could point to the sales of condoms to prove that when people say, I want to have sex for fun, there's not really in some hidden secret way about procreation. Uh, yeah. Even though, of course, procreation's the explanation for why it's fun. Yeah. Um, why. And it feels like that skepticism again comes from this sort of drive for some ultimate reason. And I'm not sure we necessarily need one. Right? Okay, the fact we feel compassion, for example, and we cooperate can can just be a positive thing, even if, of course, we evolved and have been enculturated to feel that way. You can explain things without explaining them away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So that's that's a fascinating balance. Um, the second part of this question is who matters, and I find this really important because, to my mind, it's it's a foundational moral philosophy question that is often ignored because, and again, I may be mischaracterizing it because I'm totally an amateur here, and you know I, I read quite a lot of moral philosophy, but I'm not a professional. But it does feel like most public intellectuals, 
most philosophers and most moral philosophers even implicitly, if not explicitly, focus on us humans almost exclusively, even if it's not a deliberate choice. So, and then they'll the, there'll be swathes of papers written and lectures given with dazzlingly brilliant, you know, ethical systems, and people will work through deontology and utilitarianism and consequentialism and feminist care ethics and virtue ethics and uh, transactionalism and relational ethics and on and on and on and on it goes. That there's an inbuilt assumption that only humans are relevant, you know, moral raw material in all of that work. So this question of moral scope and who gets to matter seems to be really deeply important to me, but it also seems to be broadly neglected. And to my mind, and again, I should ask a question instead of going on a rant, but even if you have a brilliant ethical system, if you've arbitrarily excluded you know, many valid moral patients, terrible things follow. And we see that in the human realm as well. You know, everyone circles back to the Greek and Roman philosophers and talks about how wonderfully insightful they were when many of them thought slavery and sexism were completely acceptable um so so that's partly why i bang on about this moral scope idea and and i'd argue that we could follow your line of thinking so far which doesn't really have foundations and is a maybe a little softer in some respects and maybe allows more latitude for people to choose what's important to them how do you apply that to thinking about moral scope and what journey have you gone through about thinking about who gets to matter and a critical question is clearly non-human animals. You know, how did you go through that journey of thinking about them as valid moral patients, if you do? Uh, I certainly do. I mean, I think of them as at least some of them as moral agents as well as patients. Mm. Um, you know, just descriptively, I start getting um, unsure at about the level of insects now, I'm not sure anymore. And for a long time, I would have said they don't count. Um, but there's been some recent work um, on e-cognition, for example, which suggests they're a lot more sophisticated cognitively than I would have thought. So I think there are two different bases, bases for mattering morally. Um, one is I... I'm not quite sure what sentience means, but I think you're using it to mean some kind of, uh, uh, capacity for pleasure and pain um, or to feel. Yeah, and and I and I take capacity for really any valenced experience. So pleasure and pain, if they're understood in extremely broad senses, such that pain can include you know existential angst and worry and fear, and pleasure can include you know. A sense of awe and wonder and love and you know but so anything negative or anything positive yeah and it's and it's also not just the feeling in a sort of nociceptive sense it's actually the again we get into fuzzy areas here but the the percep the experience of that perception not just the detection of a stimulus and a and a response to it that makes sense yeah. when i was first taught uh moral philosophy after i converted from continental philosophy to analytic uh, it was at Monash University in Australia, which was at that time where Peter Singer was and very heavily influenced by him. And the view was very much was with sentience um, is what matters for non-human animals. Yeah. Uh, if it's that's how you draw line. And I think Peter's view was sort of mollusks um, might not be sentient. That's about that that level. Mm. Everything above that um, mattered. Um, 
But as a as a tangent, sorry, Mike, the way I'm framing sentientism is it doesn't tell us where that boundary is either. It just no. says take a naturalistic Bayesian approach to trying to work it out, be prudent, but you know, follow the science. So yeah, yeah. Um and that Peter would agree with that. But what that gives you is a concern with suffering, but not life. So um famously, there are you know, famous arguments against this view that it would be fine to, if you like kittens, to get a kitten from the shelter and and have fun and make its life uh, a good kitten life, have fun playing with it, and then painlessly kill it. Yeah, because, because there's no suffering. Yeah. Or, uh, or in the sci-fi world, the, the Thanos snap that instantaneously kills half of the human population, it's fine, there's no suffering, apart from the people left behind, but, you know. And I think that's right as far as that basis of concern goes. And um, I don't like spiders, so I kind of hope that it's 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 okay at least for for spiders. Um, but there's another basis of moral concern, which is and can I? Sorry to stop you again, but the, I, I share that concern as well. And that, in a way, that's partly why I've suggested that sentientism should should not be about moral concern for all sentience. It should be about moral concern for all sentient beings which includes a view that needlessly killing them is also wrong. So, so one of the things I've tried to do is actually not detach from the sort of more utilitarian singer type view, but broaden it out to say, as long as every sentient being at least is included in your moral consideration, that's fine. And then you can go on to, you know, applying a deontological approach, you know, Christine Korsgaard, for example, has tried to adapt that in a broader sense to consider all sentient beings or a feminist care ethic where we have an obligation of care to all sentient beings or a virtue ethic where the view of kindness and compassion as a virtue has to be extended to all sentient beings. So I'm trying to make it sort of super philosophically pluralistic and that absolutely, you know, I think for most sentientists would absolutely mean even, uh, you know, without suffering, killing a sentient being is a is a moral wrong. But sorry, I don't know if you wanted to... Uh, yeah. So what's the basis for saying that ending the life of a sentient being um, is wrong? Is itself wrong? And I think the, the, the basis that makes sense to me, at least for many cases, is having a point of view, yeah. having, having a unified point of view. And in, in fact, I think for humans, that does more work than philosophers have recognized. Uh, a human... A David Chalmers style zombie. I don't know if you know zombies from from Chalmers' work. Yeah, who doesn't have the capacity for phenomenality at all, but has a point of view. Uh, I think would count as a, a a moral agent and a moral patient. And indeed, I think I would be at least close to as morally significant uh, as I am. Maybe completely. Uh, I think the phenomenality does less work than philosophers have thought. If it's all you've got going for you, then you know it gets you in, into concern. Now, if there are there are animals, non-human animals that have phenomenality without a point of view, then they matter. Then they yeah. pain. But I suspect most of them have some sort of point of view as well, and I think that's an independent basis for moral concern. Now, having a point of view gives you interests uh and in, in uh, normally these are interests in in going on um uh, such that i think yeah, yeah again, that I'd say that spiders have points 
point of view. I don't know. I hope they don't. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. No, that's fascinating. Now, one of the other things I was interested to touch on with you is um, there's a group of thinkers and philosophers who would do all of the thinking that we've done, but stick with anthropocentrism. There's another group that would agree with us, at least in concept, that we should go beyond that to consider you know, all beings that have a point of view, all beings that are sentient. And that clearly gives us clear, strong, at least minimal moral obligations to all of all of those relevant beings. So quite a few would agree with that in theory, but then struggle to actually put that into practice in their lives, given the social context we live in as well. So what what journey did you go through there? Because as I understand it, you're you're vegan as an example, which I just take as one implication of this, you know, a sentiocentric stance. What, what, how did you go through that journey of making those changes? Um, As I said, I, I, I was at Monash University at a time when uh, the entire philosophy department was convinced by Peter they should be vegetarian. Yeah. Um, but I, almost none were. Yeah. They found it very difficult. I didn't. I never found it difficult. Um, so I became a vegetarian around then. This is a long time ago, like more than 25 years ago. And uh, never found that uh, particularly dif- difficult. This might actually be linked up to why I think um, point of view matters uh, so much. I may not, I may just have weak phenomenality, um, but uh, I never missed the taste of meat or, or um, I didn't, uh, I did find it hard to give up cheese, which I did years later. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't a struggle for me. And, you know, that I kind of have no, lived sympathy with those people who say they find it really hard um these days in particular it's um you know the range of of vegan and vegetarian foods at least if you're living in the uk or australia it's different in other countries really makes it easy what doesn't make it easy for some people is social pressures yeah um I don't know. You know that veganism is highly stigmatized. Uh, I have noticed, yeah. Uh, <laughs> being, a, being a vocal vegan on Twitter, yeah. I don't know why that is. Partly it's probably just sort of sneering from the kinds of people who like to sneer. I did see a reasonably interesting paper, I mean, a very interesting paper recently on Twitter about online atheism and how online atheists are nothing like most atheists. They're much more aggressive and oh, yeah. very online atheists, that is. They're not people who just happen to tweet, uh, but very online atheists are much more aggressive and much more uh, combative. And uh, and maybe they have a role in in shaping the stereotype of atheist. For, um, and it may be something like that's going on with veganism too, although I suspect it's yeah. probably uh, largely a... Less rational than that. Well, I, and I think I think there are fascinating parallels. So, so through these conversations, one people's journey away from a religious worldview seems to have quite a long lot in common. Often from their journey away from a you know, animal consumption way of life as well. So there are um, you know they might feel an intellectual and an ethical pull that takes them consistently in both of those directions. But the social pressure and challenges are very strong. Um, um, and that can be, you know, gentle pressure, and sometimes it can be quite vicious. And in the religious case, even um, present physical risks to people. You know, some of my guests have 
been shunned by family and been threatened and even been subject to violence as a result of that. So there's there's this common thing about you know following evidence and reason and compassion to move those both of those aspects of your world you view, but then social norms challenging you. And there's a lot about um, you know, identity and group identification and um, a sense of you know what's normal and what's natural and what's traditional and what's historical and so there's there's all of those different themes that I do think there's quite a lot of com- commonality between those two different journeys but one of the other things I'm interested in is with both how they link back to this epistemological question because I think as you were saying earlier on if you've got a really strong set of values that grounds you in a certain space that also can warp your epistemology and I think you can see that you know in debates between theists and atheists and you can see that in debates between vegans and non-vegans too but it does work both ways because you know you will see atheists and vegans both so convinced that they're right about those particular topics and i think they are doing what you mentioned earlier on where that confidence spills over into other domains or can actually understandably turn into motivated reasoning about supporting justifications for those stances so you might see that with you know, vegans claiming that veganism cures cancer or, you know, and you can sort of understand why we're so desperate to persuade people to go in a certain direction, but either negatively it can warp your epistemology to justify unfounded stance, or actually you can understand why people might warp their epistemology to sort of back up something they do actually happen to be right about, but they end up using bad reasons for, you know, yeah, good I think lots but... of vegans think veganism is inherently healthy. Yeah. Which from which they they deduce two things that a non-vegan diet can't be healthy and it can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, the standard, you know, Western diet is very unhealthy. We're, we're loaded with meat, but that doesn't mean that you can't have a healthy um, diet with meat in it. That's, that's yeah. The standard West, the standard Western diet is a really easy baseline to beat. But yeah. <laughs> and, and and nor does it follow that having a vegan diet which consists of nothing but microwave meals from Tesco. Plus all those, you know, vegan chocolates and vegan ice cream is a healthy diet. It's not. Yeah, it's getting easier and easier and easier to be a deeply unhealthy vegan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do know vegans who do not have healthy diets at all. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, that's been brilliant. Thank you. So, I've got I've got a good sense of you know what matters and um and also who matters and why why you think that and why you extended your compassion in that direction. And the final big question we ask, which is as crazily big as how can we make a better future? Um, now, there's my bias clearly is that if everyone became a sentientist, committed to a you know naturalistic epistemology and had a sentiocentric scope of moral concern at least, then that would magically solve most of the world's problems because we'd be guided towards understanding reality well, and we'd have a compassion that cared about any being that had a point of view that could suffer. Um, clearly, that's breathtakingly naive, but <laughs> it does feel as though many of the problems we're facing technically aren't necessarily that difficult to solve and philosophically they're not necessarily that difficult to solve but in many cases it is the information context the social norms the social inertia you know and just the nature of human society and politics and political will that is actually the core of the problem in trying to make things better in every field whether it's non-human animals human ethics um whatever we might choose um so in that context how do you think about if you do how can we make a better future I got to say, I don't share your optimism. I'm actually quite deeply pessimistic. Yeah. Uh, the reason I'm pessimistic is climate change. Yeah. Uh, and there are huge obstacles to addressing climate change. There are uh, 
vested interests, uh, but also the collective action problem aspect of it um, has meant that we haven't done anything uh, like what we need to do to address it. Mm -hmm. We're starting to take it seriously. Yes, I'm pessimistic about climate change because I think we have left um, taking it seriously late and i think we're now going to have to spend literally trillions on adaptation and even so there's going to be a lot of death yeah of course veganism is one of the few things individuals can do that actually make a difference veganism and not flying so uh, i can't say i've got any virtue here i fly far too much what we can do generally is uh, you know i think we have to take a lot much better care of the environment that means the natural environment which we have decimated in a way that's not just uh incredibly sad but also uh, terrifying for, for us uh, uh, caring about other animals matters uh not just for their sake but for our own yeah lots of insects for example is is terrifying for us this is the irony in a way is that is that it's not even a difficult trade-off it's not like we have to sacrifice something to extend our compassion it's actually good for us even a completely anthropocentric selfish sense right when you look yeah. at the land use of animal agriculture and the deforestation and the emissions and the zoonosis and the, the list just goes on right i, th- I think yeah anyway uh, but we also need to take care of the you know this the institutional and social environment um, because so much of our thinking depends on that environment. So it, it, I think one of the great challenges, and it's not a challenge for philosophers in particular, philosophers have little to contribute, but so do many, many other disciplines, law, sociology, economic, psychology, um, but everyone is how to structure the informational environment so that we can solve collective action problems. We can see that us cooperating, you know, we're willing to cooperate, but conditional on other people cooperating. We've got to be able to see that other people are cooperating and also see that they're willing to cooperate, cop, you know, conditional on us cooperating. And that kind of transparency is absolutely essential. Now, I think there are models out there of how this can be done on, for example, I think science, peer review in science is hugely flawed, but I think it's a model. It it has a model that has elements of how it can work, uh, and that needs to be kind of rolled out across many different social structures. Uh, that sort of collective cooperate cooperation organization, but also conflict, because peer review yeah. is also essential, but it channels conflict, uh, valuing criticism and and rewarding criticism when it's valid. Yeah. Um, all that's really hand wavy, but you know, yeah. <laughs> I can't do better than than, than uh, wave my hands and say more of stuff like that, please. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think that in a way that that is the heart of it. We've got to you know design things and move towards systems that have that ability to self criticize and correct and and progress at their heart. And we've got to develop cultures that reward that as well. I mean, another example that springs to mind is what the um, you know the airline industry and uh, have done around a safety culture where you know you might start out in most industries where the instinct is to hide a problem and to cover it up and to 
um, so on. Whereas, you know, that industry, as I understand it, from the outside has managed to build a culture that is so rapidly focused on safety that there's a total transparency and a clarity and a set of processes that, you know, are, are, are totally focused on trying to make things safer and better and better. So it's, it's not impossible, even given the flaws in human society and human minds to design these institutional structures in the ways that can move things forward. And to, to, when you think about those changes, how do you think epistemic improvements and ethical improvements link? Do you think they're like distinct things? One is a, you know, know better because you trust better and institutions work better. And the other one is, you know, care more about beings that should be cared about or do you think that they they do link in some way um i guess i'm sympathetic to what's called virtue epistemology here which thinks of uh good thinking as dependent on character traits which are at once um intellectual and ethical character traits like you know respect uh respect for arguments respect for people um humility which doesn't tip over into a kind of you know civility so I'd, i'm not sure that i'm not even sure ethics is a separate uh, subject yeah um, yeah it's just behavior and uh muddling through and um it's it can be useful for certain purposes to talk about ethics but but very often when we talk about epistemology we're talking about very much the same topics yeah um as you know indicated right i had no idea that i was really doing a sort of epistemology when i was working on free will but i'm doing philosophy of action that's the technical yeah. uh designation and of course you do orient in certain ways when you think of it as philosophy of action rather than epistemology but the things leak into each other they're porous they're they're yeah. uh, they're not, they're not things that we should be trying to have hard and fast boundaries between. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, I think, uh, you know, the better our epistemology is, the, the less rationales we can find for broken ethics and uncompassionate ethics and exclusionary ethics. It doesn't guarantee we'll have a robust compassionate ethic, but I think a naturalistic approach makes it more likely, but, but also as you were implying there having a sort of compassionate approach to engaging with others can actually improve our you know societal epistemological dynamic as as well and having that sort of virtue epistemology approach maybe is a way to connect the two and can i ask you to finish off with a final tip for the preachy vegans and the preachy atheists about there about virtue signaling whether it's virtuous to virtue signal and if so how to do it in a way that is um has integrity and isn't too annoying <laughs> So, uh, the uh, criticisms of virtue signaling are often overblown because I don't think there's anything wrong with indicating your values. Uh, I think with something that we do um, as part of establishing trust relations with one another, and that's something we need to do. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. Um, I do think that it can become uh, a kind of pathology when people build their entire identity um around a kind of signaling of of their good qualities and the reason why it becomes a pathology isn't so much the signaling itself as it channels them in certain directions it it uh 
it gives them incentives to adopt beliefs and behaviors which mm. aren't either ethical uh incentives or or um epistemic uh incentives signals like uh you know uh the building up my, my number of twitter followers or maybe it's mastodon followers these days yeah um i just followed you there a couple of hours ago <laughs> I, i've i've got a uh, got to get my head around that platform <laughs> yeah, yeah um so you know i think it's not something that's criticizable in itself but it can all by itself but it can become pathological and uh the very online atheists are probably people who are um, for whom it's become a, a a pathology. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Some of us vegans too, and I'm I'm sure I fall into the trap. But I think as long as the virtues are actually good ones, and as long as you aspire to um, actually live up to them yourself, and you and you engage about those virtues with compassion for the people you're talking to, I think maybe that can mitigate some of the risk of pathology there as well. So that's good to finish with some practical tips. Well, I need to let you go. It's been a fascinating to talk to you thank you so much for taking the time to join sentientist conversations and sharing your work what's what's the best way of people following you learning more about what you do buying your books uh well you don't have to buy my most recent book it's open access you can just uh find it on the oxford university press uh homepage or, um, or you can google it bad beliefs why they happen to good people most of my papers are published open access, and I'm not a particularly technical philosopher, so uh, they should be approachable by you know m most people who who would think to tackle them. Um, you can find the list on the philpapers.org website. Uh, just uh, search for my name, Neil Levy, on that that website. Um, and you can email me. I'm easy to find and I'm happy to send you copies of papers. That's brilliant. Thank you. I love the open access stuff too. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on Sentientist Conversations and um, hopefully I haven't put you off being a sentientist. So. Thanks. It's been fun. Thanks, Neil. Stay in touch. Cheers. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalise rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'll be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?